How do you like interruptions? How do you handle interruptions? The funny thing is, interruptions are one of those things, from the time we're a little kid, we're told not to interrupt other people. I still haven't learned to stop doing that. Right? Don't talk until somebody talks to you, say excuse me. Interruptions, there are small interruptions in life. There are interruptions like somebody cutting you off when you're trying to talk. Interruptions like your cell phone dying or something like that. There are also really significant interruptions in life. An interesting question that you can discuss over lunch today is what actually constitutes an interruption. Is it when my plans don't come together? Significant interruptions in our life. Disease. Severe accidents. Death. A pandemic. A war. As we come to this passage, we come to two different types of interruptions. We have an interruption in Peter's sermon. He's not done yet. And he's interrupted. But we also have another interruption that takes place because up to this point in the book of Acts, things are just flowing along. We've had Christ's ascension. He's said, wait for the coming of the Holy Spirit. They waited. The Holy Spirit has come. Peter preaches one sermon. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. They're meeting together. They're finding favor with people. The apostles are performing signs and wonders. All is falling on people who are not believers. And it just seems like everything is going really, really well. We have had no sign, no record up to this point in the book of Acts that there's been anything difficult at this point. In fact, we're told at the beginning of our passage this week that at this message here that Peter preaches that 5,000 men, I don't think it's just men, but 5,000 people come to faith in Christ. Everything is going seemingly really, really well. And now a significant, significant interruption. Because after this moment, nothing will go as smoothly as it was for the first three chapters. Now, before I go any further, I, I just want to pause and, if you will, let me have just a pastorly moment with you and just say this to you, plead with you in this way. Maybe you're here this morning and you're already having a difficult time paying attention to me because your life is so interrupted. Maybe this morning you struggled to get here because you are walking through an incredibly difficult valley of life. Can I just tell you, plead with you to not walk it alone. While we do not profess to have answers to all of your problems and we don't have solutions, we're not going to promise you a miracle that's going to make everything perfect. Here is what I do know that God has given to us, brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given to us the church so that we don't have to walk the hard times that he ordains for our lives all alone. So if you find yourself in one of those moments in life, I just want to encourage you to reach out. And if the first person you talk to doesn't understand, then keep asking. Well, here we are, interruptions. 
We left Peter and John off last week in the middle of a sermon. It's not kind. I don't know why we put a chapter break between chapter 3 and 4, the place that we did. But Peter has been preaching a message after healing a man at the temple. This crowd gathers and Peter is preaching a message in which he is abundantly clear that this man, this lame man, has been healed in the name of Jesus. Peter is specific about who this Jesus is. He is the exalted servant of God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And he calls the people to change their minds, to repent about how they understand Jesus and how they've responded to Him. Stop rejecting Him and place your faith in Him that He might blot out your sins, that you might receive the Holy Spirit and you might be ready for Christ's return. Now, it appears as though there are Jewish leaders in the crowd, both because Peter references that, I think, in chapter 3 before, but also because right here at the beginning of our passage, we find that there's this interruption. In verse 1, it says that the priest, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. That phrase, came upon them, is used by Luke to speak of a sudden event. At some point, they have had enough. We're told here that the priests are there, the captain of the temple. The captain of the temple was uh, second in charge to the high priest. He was over the temple police, and he had a lot of authority. The Sadducees were a key sect in Judaism. From the Sadducees came the high priest. They were slightly different from the Pharisees who were focused on the law and study of the law. The Sadducees tended to be a little more materialistic. And as my dad loved to jokingly say, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. I know, it's bad. Verse 2 tells us that they were greatly annoyed. It could be translated angry. They had enough. They were fed up. This word is used one other time in the New Testament in Acts chapter 16, verse 18, when after days of having a demon-possessed girl fall Paul and Silas around, saying these are servants of the Most High God, this same word is used when Paul turns around and casts the demon out of this girl. He was greatly annoyed. They are annoyed. They're angry. They're angry and they are clear about what they are. It's so annoying to them. They're annoyed because of Peter and John teaching the people about Jesus, and specifically they're teaching the people about this resurrection, that Jesus has risen and that there is the hope of resurrection. So this day, this evening, starts with a miracle, right? This is is the afternoon. It's uh, 3 o'clock prayer time and then the evening sacrifice. The way I think the flow of the passage goes is that probably... Peter heals this man after the prayer meeting is over. And and so all these events continue to take place. It's nighttime, but this afternoon starts with a healing. I don't think Peter went to the temple thinking, I'm going to heal somebody. But this healing takes place. This large crowd gathers. The gospel is going forward. It seems like everything is going smoothly. And then the day ends with Peter and John. And as I understand it, this now healed lame man in prison. It's interesting that right here in these first four verses, we have a clear opposition set up. 
There is a stark contrast between the response of these religious leaders, these, these Jewish leaders, and the people. Verse 4 tells us that, uh, but as many of those who heard the word believed. So there's this whole group, 5,000 men, which, again, I don't think that's just saying men. That expression can be used to mean women as well. So there's this, this large group of people, and they all believe they're hearing the exact same message as these leaders are hearing. And so in one group, the hearing of these words results in faith, belief. They hear hope. They hear joy. They hear salvation. And another group hears the exact same message. And what do they hear? Anger, annoyance. It's a great reminder for us this morning, right here at the outset, that as the gospel goes forward, the response to that exact same message will be to some life, hope, and joy, and that exact same message to others will be like nails on a chalkboard, will be annoyance and anger. Now, I know we might think, yeah, but I think I could do a better job uh, presenting the gospel and defending the gospel if, if maybe... I understood more of scripture or, or maybe if I had better arguments to, to battle against the different worldviews or that are out there. Of course, if we're looking at this passage, we go, I think I could be a better evangelist if, I don't know, I could do miracles. <laughs> that might be nice. But these men who stand there and utter disbelief and unbelief and anger saw the exact same thing. They had the exact same evidence. And yet they respond in anger. It's a reminder to us this morning that our call, like Peter and John's call, is that we are, to, we are called to present the good news about Jesus Christ. It is to us to present faithfully, lovingly, as clearly as possible the good news about Jesus Christ. It is not to us to try and convince people, to persuade people, to make people to believe. You probably know that already this morning, but if you're anything like me, that can begin to creep in and we can begin to think in our minds that, that our responsibility is not just to present the gospel, but, but we need to try to persuade people. Don't get me wrong. It can be helpful, obviously helpful, for us to have a good understanding of God's word as we go out to present the gospel. It can be abundantly helpful, not just for others, but for ourselves as we go to present the gospel if we are aware of other philosophies and worldviews that we will confront. Clearly, this whole scene here in Acts happens because God gave Peter the ability to perform a miracle, and that brings this whole crowd about. But in the midst of all of that, don't forget what we saw back in Acts chapter 2 and verse 47. Where at the end of that verse, it says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who was doing the adding? Well, the apostles with their signs and wonders. No. The community with all of its love. No, it was the Lord. And it always is His work. He is the one who saves. He is the one that can change hearts and minds. He is the one that determines whether the response by one is of anger and the response by another is faith. 
We are not made to carry the weight of trying to persuade people to faith in Christ. And worse yet, some of my worst moments in trying to share the gospel were moments where not only was I trying to persuade people, but I was acting like a salesman living off of commission. Right? Not only do I need to persuade you, but I need you to believe so that I feel better about me as a Christian. Now my motive isn't even really communicating Christ. My motive isn't even really convincing you for your sake. My motive is convincing you for my sake so I feel better about me and how good I am. And I think in some way God will be more pleased with me because I've convinced you. And what's supposed to be a great act of love becomes a battle. Be reminded this morning, be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, that our call is to present the good news about Jesus Christ. That is what we are asked to do. And Peter does it in these two sermons that we've seen of Peter thus far. He communicates that message as clearly as he possibly can to the audience that God has put before him. Both are Jewish audiences, and he explains the gospel in ways that they could clearly understand it. And as we go through the through Acts, we'll find that, that this same truth about Jesus Christ is going to be presented in different ways to different groups, unchanged, but in order to create that communication. Well, Peter here presents this. There's this opposition that's set up. Some believe and some do not. And they end the day in prison. They end the day uh, not in prison for punishment's sake, but just to be held so that the next day they can have a trial. And verse 5 tells us that next day this trial has the who's who of Jewish leaders. They are all there. You have the rulers, you have the elders, you have the scribes, and you have the high priestly family who is there. All gathered together. Now, Josephus tells us that this probably was in a semicircle. All these highfalutin guys sitting around in a semicircle. And so when the text says they were in their midst, probably if you have this image, a big semicircle, all of these well-educated, highly esteemed, authoritative men all sitting around. And here is Peter and John, two fishermen, apostles, who remember, came up to the temple saying, I don't have a dime in my pocket. And a guy who's been healed, but who has been a beggar, and as best I can tell, he has not had an opportunity to take a shower or to get a change of clothes. They're standing in the midst of all of these well-dressed, well-respected men all around them. How many of you have testified in court before? If you had that opportunity, I call it an opportunity. I was terrified. I've done it one time. It was just here in Fayetteville. And after I got sworn in, it took me five seconds to remind myself, yes, that is, my name is Eric. Right? You're just, you're, you're, you're terrified because I don't know, there's the judge and then there's all these people and there are guys in there with guns on them and, and there's this person who's taking down every word you say. And you've just sworn. I'll tell the truth and nothing but the truth. What's your name? I don't know. I don't, I forget. I can't imagine what it would be like to testify before the Supreme Court. Can you imagine that? Imagine you're called today before the Supreme Court of the United States of America. And you are, you, you stand there to testify. You swear in before the chief justices. I imagine my heart would be racing. 
This is the supreme court of the Jewish people. There is nothing higher. There is, this is no podunk little town somewhere. No, this, this, is, this is as big as it gets. And here stands Peter and John in the midst of them. And this question, these two questions are given to them. By what authority did you do this? And by what name or what source did you receive that authority or power? Now, these aren't original questions. If we were to go back to Luke chapter 20, we would find that when Jesus was teaching in the temple, the religious leaders came to him and posed almost the exact same questions. As he taught there in the temple, preaching the gospel, the chief priests, the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that's given you this authority. Now, the readers of Acts, Theophilus and those who originally received this, they know immediately what the answer is. Because Peter has made it abundantly clear. Back in chapter 3 and verse 12, when all of the crowd is looking at Peter and John, Peter says, why are you looking at us? Do you think it's from our piety or our power that this man is healed? And in verse 16, speaking of Jesus, he says, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So the, the answer is obvious, but now in this context, if we've been following with Luke's writings, we've read through the Gospel of Luke, and now we come to this moment in the book of Acts, we come to a moment where now Peter, who has been so bold when he was preaching the gospel is now standing before the very men who tried Jesus and handed him over to the Romans. He's standing before the same high priest outside of whose house Peter denied Jesus multiple times. Not being interrogated by the high priest, mind you, just by a slave girl and some others. And that evening ended with the rooster crowing. And Luke chapter 22, verse 61 says that the Lord Jesus looked at Peter and that Peter went out and wept bitterly. I don't think the original readers of Luke's gospel and this uh, book of Acts, this is lost on them what's happening in this moment who this Peter is who's standing in the midst of these religious leaders. And I certainly do not think it's lost on Peter. In Luke chapter 22, Jesus said, Simon, Simon, pay attention. Satan has demanded to have you all, to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Peter, in the moment of his Savior's greatest need, crumbled under the pressure. At first, he attempted to respond with force, chopping off an ear with his sword, and then he just crumbles and flees and abandons Christ to these same men to be handed over, to be crucified. And now we're here with Peter again, and now he's not outside, he's in their midst, and all of them are standing around, and they're demanding to know, based upon what power and what source of power have you done these things? 
Our God is a God who loves to redeem and to restore. Our God is a God who loves to bring life out of that which is dead. God had not forgotten Peter's past. Certainly Peter had not. God has not forgotten your past. Our God is not a God who erases chapters from our story, tears them out and throws them away, blots them out, covers them up. Our God is a God who loves to take, as the song says, garden uh, graves and turn them into gardens. There is nothing in your past that makes you unusable. There is not a chapter, a paragraph, or a sentence of your story that God has not read, better yet, memorized. He is a God who takes and restores. I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when, when you turn, strengthen the brothers. What a beautiful moment to have Peter standing here. To have Peter who denied Christ so adamantly after being so assured of his confidence in himself that he would boldly stand and now he's brought to this point, an even more intense point, standing as it were in the Supreme Court of the Jews and there he stands and what will happen? Well, the text tells us that as they ask these questions in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if, you, if we are being examined today concerning a, a good deed done to a crippled man, by what name this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, it is by him this man is standing before you well. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, it's beautiful no matter what, but it's incredibly beautiful because it's Peter standing before these men before whom he cowered before and now, now he's not charging forward with a sword screaming in anger. Now he is filled with the Spirit boldly proclaiming power in the name of Jesus. The text says that Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and this was something that Jesus had promised would happen. In Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus told His disciples, but when they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities, do not worry about how you should make your defense or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that moment what you must say. This is the way God acts. This is the way that He, he often acts throughout Scripture. I don't know about you, but one of the things that frustrates me at times, if I dare say that, about the Lord and how He chooses to work, is that He tends to do things like He does here for Peter, giving him a filling of the Spirit and the words to say in the moment. Not ahead of the moment. Not a day in advance. In the moment. This is exactly what He said was going to happen. I, don't worry about what you're supposed to say when they drag you before these rulers who, oh, by the way, could have you killed. Don't worry. 
In the moment, I'll give you the words. The Spirit will give you the words that you need. And here's what I say. I say, God, I am so ready to go be bold with the gospel. And I'm so ready to stand in the face of death. Just give me now the grace that I'll need to endure that when it comes. And he says, no, trust me that when the moment comes, I'll give you the grace that you need. And so I sit back and I wait in the safety of my home and I say, God, I'm ready to go be bold with the gospel and to declare the good news about Jesus and to stand in the face of those who would, who would reject it. Just give me, give me an understanding of everything I'll need to go out and do it. And he says, no. Go out and do it. Trusting me. Knowing that in the moment, I will give you the grace that you need. See, what I want is I want a pantry full of manna. That's what I want. I want to be able to store up the grace of God so that I can see it there so that when I go out to walk in obedience to God, I can know there's grace enough for the moments as they come. God says, no, I don't want you to trust in my grace. I want you to trust in me. In me. Not in the blessings that I give. Trust in me. And in the moment, God gives to Peter the words to say, God gives to Peter this spirit-filled boldness. Now, I don't know about you. This might be because I've watched too many action movies growing up. So when I read about Peter being filled with the Spirit, and then later on you read that these religious leaders saw the boldness of Peter, my mind immediately goes to the cutout scene in a Rambo movie where he's strapping on all of the bullets and the grenades and finishing off with tying, you know, the red headband on. Right? This, this is, this is, this is what this spirit produced boldness is. I mean, at least you can be with me. It's like, it's like Mario getting a mushroom and he, and he gets bigger or something. Firepower, right? Now, now you're just stomping on people, spitting fire. Like, I mean, this is what's happened, right? This, this boldness here. Obviously what this boldness is, is that Peter is now just floating over the whole situation. He doesn't care, right? He's just bigger than it all. He's got this amazing bravado now. He's ready to roar. That's not what happens. I mean, they make for a good movie, but that's not what happens. What does this Spirit-produced boldness accomplish? What does this filling of the Spirit do? This filling of the Spirit does not take away the difficulty of the situation. It does not alleviate all of the persecution. It does not mean that by the end of the text, everyone has believed and they all live happily ever after. Here's what this Spirit-produced boldness does. It stirs Peter's faith and he, I believe, becomes absolutely, completely, and totally certain of who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And he knows if this is it for me, so be it. Because I know that I know that I know who my Savior is. And I know that he's risen. And I know that he's coming again. And I know that this gospel is the only one that saves. And if this is the end of my life, so be it. Boldness is never intended to be a root. It's a fruit. Boldness is not a cause. It's an effect. Boldness for boldness sake, we call that arrogance. 
It's not a virtue. This boldness is not just Peter being bold. It's, it's Peter's boldness that's produced from this faith, this certainty about who Jesus is. And so that's what he declares in this moment. With this total certainty, this absolute conviction about who Jesus Christ is, he speaks out to them. As we already read, he tells them that it is in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the one that they crucified, that God raised from the dead. That's how this man has been made well. But he doesn't stop there. He alludes to Psalm 118, verse 22. This is a, a frequently quoted psalm throughout the New Testament. The context of this psalm is the Israel or Israel's king being rejected by the nations. But sadly, throughout the New Testament, this psalm is taken and quoted as Israel rejecting their king, her king. And so here, Peter doesn't exactly quote it, but, but he, he, he makes some adjustments to it, I think in Peter fashion, to make it even stronger. Verse 11, he says, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected. That's one of his first changes. He says scorned. It's really the way it would be translated. You scorned him. And then he adds, just to make abundantly clear, he adds, by you. He doesn't just jump to the builders, leaving it ambiguous. No, he says, by you, you scorned him, you rejected him. But he has become the chief cornerstone. In verse 12, he says, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter speaks this incredibly clear, this piercing clarity, this truth about Christ into the midst of this situation. He doesn't crumble in fear. He doesn't respond in anger. He doesn't just respond in this kind of, I don't know, uh, he-man type of bravado. No, he, he is resolute in his faith in who Jesus Christ is. Now we're going to see uh, next week as we continue in this passage, we're going to see the church praying for boldness. And I just want you to think, when you pray for that, when you ask God, God, give me boldness as I go out into the community, what do you expect to happen? What do you think a Holy Spirit-produced boldness would mean? Would it mean that you become like Rambo, where you're able to shoot everybody and somehow no bullets hit you? Do you think it's, it means, God, make it easy for me to do this? Or perhaps it's what we see here in Peter that a spirit-produced boldness would result in our faith being all the more strengthened in who Jesus Christ is so that as we go out, we go out with absolute confidence, prepared to speak with absolute clarity about the person and work of Jesus Christ. The message that Peter speaks here is a message of truth. It is... <laughs> A message that was abundantly offensive to these leaders. And if we're honest, it's still an offensive message to us because verse 12 leaves it without any wiggle room. There isn't salvation anywhere else. There's one means of salvation. And it's in Christ. He is the only means of salvation. Now, they didn't like that, but the reality is that in our culture, we don't like that any more than they did. In our culture, we have decided that a way to show love is 
to tell everyone that their version of truth is equally true. We've decided to tell people that what tolerance is, is to accept everybody's opinion as equally right. Let me remind you here that the text says Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, as we're told by Paul in Galatians, starts out with love. And love, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13, does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. I don't think Peter here is an angry preacher screaming and yelling, veins popping out of his neck. I think he is declaring the truth about Jesus Christ unashamedly, but with great love for these leaders. Desiring that they would repent, which is what he said in the last chapter. That what they did to Jesus, their rejection of Jesus, they did in ignorance. And now the opportunity is there for them to repent. Brothers and sisters, in the midst of a world that would try to tell us that when we speak truth, we are being unkind, may we hear this clear message from God's Word and see this clear example in Peter, filled with the Spirit, speaking unashamedly and clearly truth about who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. It is not kind for us if we believe verse 12 to be true, an often quoted verse from the book of Acts, if we believe truly that there is salvation in no one else, that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved, then this is a message that if we genuinely care for others, we have to declare it. And we should not allow the world around us, the culture around us to convince us that Accepting all other versions of truth as equally true is somehow loving or kind. Peter speaks with absolute boldness to them. And so what happens? Well, verse 13 tells us when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men and they were astonished. I, I don't think that's intended to be an insult. It kind of seems that way. But remember, these are all highly educated religious men. They're looking at Peter and John. They know that they have not been educated in the same way. And yet here they are speaking with such clarity and authority. They're astonished, but then they recognize where this understanding has come from, that these were men who had been with Jesus. Reminds us of how often these religious leaders were absolutely befuddled by Jesus and his understanding of the word. These are laymen, but yet disciples of Jesus. And so they're, 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 I think they're frustrated by that. But verse 14 tells us they have this healed man standing there in their midst. So what are they going to do? Well, they put the Peter and John and this, this healed man out and they discuss together. There's a little bit of debate as to how we know what they discussed. Was Paul there? Was Nicodemus there? How do we know what they discussed? The text doesn't tell us, but we find out that these men, having heard this bold proclamation about how this man was healed, instead of responding now by faith, what do they do? They seek to cover it up. They seek to hide it. They, they, they seek to put an end to it. Not only do they not want to believe or unwilling to believe, but they want to make sure that this message does not spread. 
They can't deny the miracles that is, that has taken place. And in fact, at the end of the text, there's this incredibly sad note. Verse 22 tells us that this man, this sign of healing that had been performed, had been performed on a man that was 40 plus years old. So everyone knew this man. He had been lame from birth, we were told in chapter 3. Everyone knew this man had been healed. It is abundantly evident what has happened. And the people around are all praising God about what has taken place. And yet they still refuse to believe. This is the blinding work of sin. These leaders have heard a clear message from Peter. They have evidence in this healed man that's standing before them. They have evidence in the fact that the result of this healing are people praising God and coming to faith in Jesus Christ. And instead of it resulting in them changing their attitude, they increase their opposition. They don't want to believe and they don't want others to believe. And so they call Peter and John back in and they say to them, we don't want you to, to teach any longer, to speak any longer in the name of Jesus. The way it comes across is to say, listen, if you want to keep teaching, that's fine. We'll let you do that. Just don't do it in Jesus' name. Maybe if you even want to keep healing people, that's great, but just don't do it in Jesus' name. Whatever you do, you've got to stop teaching in Jesus' name. And now Peter and John give to us this greater opposition that's here. They respond by saying, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge. There are greater forces at work here. There's a greater opposition at work here than Peter and John in front of some religious leaders. <laughs> that's the immediate opposition. There, there's a greater opposition than what we saw in the first four verses where there's all these who believe and these religious leaders who reject. There is a greater opposition at work here that we're told about in Scripture when Paul reminds the church at Ephesus to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. To put on the armor of God because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present age, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There is more at work here as the kingdom of God is advancing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is great opposition taking place here. In 2 Corinthians, speaking as an apostle, I think about the work of being an apostle. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse 1, Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we, I think, talking about the apostles, do not lose heart. But we have received disgraceful under, we must, we, excuse me, we have renounced disgraceful underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or tampering with God's word. But by the open statement of truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. As we go out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we need to be mindful of the fact that we do not just, uh, we're not just at opposition with the philosophies of our day and time. We're not just in opposition to people who maybe believe other things, but we are standing in opposition to the prince of the power of this world as Paul puts it, to the God of this world. 
we should not be surprised that there is opposition. And as we, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is going to be the beginning of opposition that is going to continue all the way through the book of Acts. I know for us living in the United States where we take almost everything in through our five senses, the thought of living in a reality of a spiritual realm is not something we're confronted with on a daily basis. It's not something I should say we think about on a daily basis. But the reality is, Scripture's clear teaching is that as we go out to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, we go out to wage warfare against principalities and powers and dominions. We go out to wage warfare against the God of this age. And there will be opposition, strong opposition. But as we will see in the book of Acts, even this opposition that Satan would intend to use to crush this tiny little church in Jerusalem, even this opposition that he would think he got Peter one time to fall. Remember, those were Jesus' words. Satan desired to sift you, Peter. But I've prayed for you that your faith would remain and, and when you turn, you would strengthen the brothers. And here, what does Peter do? He's there standing before these leaders. Just think for a moment, for just a moment, what happens if in this scene, Peter crumbles? Think about what happens. What happens if in this moment, Peter says, I, I give up, I'm scared, I'm afraid, and he runs away. What happens in this moment? But yet, his, his faith stands firm and he boldly proclaims Christ and the outflow of that is this rejoicing by the church as they pray for boldness in the face of persecution and instead of crumbling, the church stands firm, filled with the Spirit, proclaiming the Gospel. And in response, what's going to happen? Satan's going to ramp up that persecution even to the point of taking the life of one of these in the church. But God is not deterred. He is going to take here what Satan has intended for evil, what the God of this world would use to snuff out this church, and he is going to use it to spread the church throughout the world. So that, as this morning I got a text from Justin, who will be back next week, so you guys don't have to endure me any longer, is there in Jerusalem today sending a text to me, and it made this passage all the more vivid and clear that in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 Jesus said to those followers of his wait the Holy Spirit is going to come and you're going to be my disciples from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to where to the uttermost parts of the world and so there's Justin in Jerusalem where this thing began, where Jesus made that promise to His followers before He ascended and sent the Holy Spirit. And where do you and I sit this morning? Oh, I guarantee you, this is the ends of the world to Peter. <laughs> Fayetteville, in the world is that? A disease? Right? I mean, he had no concept of this. And here we are. And how did we get here? We got here not through fancy programs, not because more social media influencers came to faith in Christ and we got a bunch of likes, not through man's great scheming. We got here through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ through broken people like Peter, who in a moment when their faith could have crumbled, the Spirit of God fills them with boldness and gives them the words to speak. And in love, in love, they speak 
boldly and clearly about who Jesus Christ is. And it goes down from generation to generation to generation to generation. Here you and I sit today. If we've placed our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is because He has been good to His promises. And because this same Jesus who Peter stands before these men and boldly proclaims as the only means of salvation is still the only means of salvation. And His power to save has not diminished in the least bit. And the same Spirit who filled Peter and gave him boldness to speak with such clarity in the midst of what was an incredibly difficult and hard moment for him is the same Spirit who indwells you if you are a child of God and will fill you and give you the boldness that you need to speak with that same clarity and compassion and humility to the glory of Christ and to the saving of souls. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we thank you. We thank you for your patience with us. We thank you that we have these stories like this of people like Peter, whom you use in moments like this because we can, we can so, we can so relate. Th thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his perfect life, perfect obedience, sacrificial death, His resurrection and His ascension. Thank You for the outpouring of Your Spirit who now indwells all of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Thank You that we have certainty that as we go out in obedience to continue doing this, this commission that You gave to us, obeying this command that You gave to us to, to declare the Gospel, and as we face persecution, as we face rejection, as Peter did, as John did, as the church would there in Jerusalem, and then as it spread, would continue to face rejection and persecution, that we have that same assurance that the Spirit indwells us, that you will give grace for the moment, and that the Jesus that we go out to proclaim is still mighty to save that He has lost none of His authority, none of His power. In fact, He promised that He would be with us to the very end. Thank You for that. Help us, Lord, as we will see the, the outflow of this text next week. Help us, Lord, oh, by the power of Your Spirit, give to us, oh Lord, boldness. Spirit-produced boldness. That we wouldn't just be here and talk about these things, but we would leave here with love in our hearts for those who are lost because of our love for you. And we would speak with absolute clarity the hope that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. And help us in those moments when we're rejected, when we're scorned, when we're mocked, when we're pushed aside, when we're criticized, when we're told that because we're speaking truth and love that we're actually hating people, help us in those moments to know what to do and how to respond. But may it not deter us, Lord. May the gospel continue to advance that your son would receive the glory that he is due and that the sheep that he said are his and would hear his voice and respond, oh Lord, that they would hear it. That even today there would be many who come to faith in Jesus Christ, for there is salvation in no other name. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.